Welcome back to Last Week on Earth. I'm your host, Odessa Primus, with Michael Coran. This episode's guest is the American physicist Dr. William Colglazer. With an impressive resume, Colglazer's long career has taken him to the Secretary of State, where he provided scientific and technical expertise and advice in support of the development and implementation of U.S. foreign policy as a science and technology advisor. Today, he's the Editor-in-Chief of Science and Diplomacy and Senior Scholar in the Center for Science Diplomacy at the American Association for Advancement of Science. In this episode, Cole Glazer talks about his way into science and politics and his work to implement the Sustainable Development Goals through science, technology, and innovation. He describes the current setbacks to science and public policies such as the Paris Agreement, Iran nuclear deal, and the unpreparedness of the U.S. in the recent pandemic. Please subscribe and share and enjoy the podcast. If you were to be interviewing yourself, what would be the question you want to be asked? Okay. Well, in terms of the, the questions that uh, at least I thought it would be asked, would be, uh, what is it that, I, that most excites me today uh, and that I'm working on, that I'm most optimistic about? And, and what I thought I would talk about was uh, science uh, diplomacy, and I'll explain a little bit sort of what I mean by that, but also the role of science, technology, innovation for achieving the uh, sustainable development goals. But just a, a little bit of, of my background, sort of explain how I got involved in this. All I wanted to do when I was growing up and went to school was to be a theoretical physicist. And so I went to undergraduate and graduate school in that field and expected I would be an academic and a researcher for most of my life. I went to, to, to school, university in the 1960s, got my PhD in 1971. And for young people today, they're always going to remember 50 years from now what the year 2020 was all about with uh, uh, the searing pandemic across the world. For, for my generation, uh, the year that we remember, at least in the United States, was 1968. Uh, that was when the United States was in the middle of the Vietnam War. We had uh, the, uh, the protests of the Democratic National Committee. We had a assassination of Martin Luther King and, and Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, we had an avowed racist running for president. And so a lot of young scientists in my era were very interested in how we could use our expertise and knowledge to uh, try to make the world a better place, somewhat altruistic, optimistic view, considering the, the problems. And, and I was fortunate to have a number of mentors in science who were great scientists, uh, but they also spent a lot of their career working outside of uh, science. Uh, examples, because I was a physicist, some of my professors, I went to Caltech, had been involved in the Manhattan Project in World War II. And uh, they spent a lot of their career after that, trying to, to work in terms of dialogues with uh, Soviet scientists, Chinese scientists, to make sure nuclear weapons were, were never used uh, uh, again. One of these was a physicist named uh, Wolfgang Panofsky, who was director of the Stanford Linux Accelerator Center. And another who I worked for, uh, uh, Paul Doty, who had been on President Kennedy's Science Advisory Committee. And, and both of them were heavily involved, never served in government, I consider them to be great science diplomats, but they were involved in what are called track two discussions with uh, particularly scientists in the Soviet Union at the time, but also with, uh, with China on arms control of nuclear weapons. Uh, later in my career, when I sort of switched over into working full time on what you might call science policy, science and international affairs, uh, another mentor, Sherry Rowland, one of the three scientists who got a Nobel Prize, first environmental Nobel Prize, the threat of chlorofluorocarbons to the ozone layer. And through uh, his science and his passionate uh, advocating, uh, working with very talented diplomats, led, helped to lead anyway to the Montreal Protocol uh, 
in the in the 1980s. Another great scientist I worked with, Millie Dresselhaus, professor at MIT, sort of known as the uh, the queen of carbon. Uh, all of these scientists I mentioned uh, used their great reputations in science actually to use it in connecting with scientists in other countries working again on issues like uh, arms control, on environmental issues. And they were sort of the inspiration for, for uh, younger scientists uh, uh, like me. Uh, later in my career, when I switched over, I, went on, I was a professor, but I went on a sabbatical to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, uh, which actually is a, a three academy of science, engineering, and medicine. They honor great scientists in the three fields. But the real role in terms of public policy is advising the American government the American government, the American public on, uh, uh, on public policy issues where uh, information, insights, knowledge from science is relevant and important, important for input into uh, public policy decisions. I ended up staying for 20 years and sort of overseeing all of these studies, which is a large operation like uh, 200 studies a year done with expert committees. Uh, but, but part of that time we engaged with scientific communities in other countries to work on issues that were important for both countries uh, with China, for example, on air pollution issues, with uh, public health issues, with science academies in Africa, with many countries around the world. One of our ulterior motives, in addition to uh, throwing light on these important issues, which were common not only for the, the countries we dealt with, but probably for the globe as well, was also trying to help build a capacity of science communities and other countries to become more important advisors uh, to their own governments on, on policy issues, sort of with the altruistic hope that uh, that might help to lead to more rational decisions and in input if we could, if uh, other governments relied more heavily on their science community for advice uh, and input. Uh, to, to two of the studies I was overseeing at the time, uh, both came out in 1999. They actually had a big influence on the, on the rest of my career when I retired from the Academy of Sciences in 2011. Uh, one of the studies in 1999 was called The Pervasive Role of Science, Technology, and Health in Foreign Policy. Uh, for, it was uh, a message was for the U.S. Foreign Ministry, the Department of State, although it was, the study was not funded by the State Department. Uh, it was funded by a private individual as a gift. Uh, but Madeleine Albright, who was the Secretary of State at the time, uh, decided to pay attention, didn't take all the recommendations, but one she took was to create the position of the Science and Technology Advisor to the Secretary of State. Uh, in 2011, when I retired from the Academy, I was asked to take on that job. It was set up as a fixed term of three years, non-political uh, position, and I served under Secretaries Clinton and Kerry. The other study that came out in 1999 that had an impact on my career uh, was called Our Common Journey, A Transition Towards Sustainability. Again, it was not funded by the government, it was funded by uh, a private gift. And it was looking at the role of science and technology for sustainable uh, development. And when uh, the negotiations occurred later between the nation states at the UN on what became the 2030 agenda with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, uh, the diplomats had recognized that they had to do a better job of harnessing science, technology, innovation if they were going to be able to make progress on the 17 SDGs. And so they created something with a curious name called a technology facilitation mechanism as part of the 2030 agenda, which is how science, technology, innovation uh, can help achieve the sustainable development goals. And uh, 
there was an advisory committee as part of that, the 10 person advisory committee of external advisors, both from developed and developing countries. And I was co-chair of that group for the first two, uh, for 2016 to 2018. I still continue to work partially with, with the UN. So when I, from these experiences, I became a great proponent of the role of science and technology in foreign affairs, and also the role of science and technology for sustainable development. Uh, and what I mean by science diplomacy, we used to talk about science and diplomacy, science and international affairs, science and foreign policy. And when we kind of dropped the word and a little over a decade ago, I, I like that because it sort of indicates that the uh, it's a tool or a mechanism for achieving concrete goals. It can be the use of scientific expertise, scientific knowledge to achieve diplomatic goals. It could also be diplomatic expertise helping to achieve goals that advance the, the scientific enterprise worldwide. So much of my career has been involved in these two big issues, the role of science, advice for public policy, and the role of science, technology, innovation for uh, sustainable development. One of the books that I really enjoyed uh, reading was Hans Morgenthau, Truth to Power, uh, where he, is, uh, he starts with a great admiration for science and technology. And in the end, he says that politics and power are largely impervious to, largely immune or ignorant of science because of the nature of politics, you know, the sort of Carl Schmitt sort of a nature of politics where you have to do what you have to do. Would you agree or are you more optimistic in this regard? Uh, yeah, I, I'm uh, a little more optimistic. Uh, it's clear that, that politics is a more powerful force than science, at least in the, in the short run. Uh, and I can give you examples later of things that I thought were great achievements in science diplomacy where there was considerable setbacks due to the uh, politics. I still take the long view that in the long run, that uh, political leaders who ignore what is known from science are really making uh, serious miscalculations that can come back to, uh, uh, to bite them. One of my other mentors in science was a famous physicist, Richard Feynman. Uh, and he served on the, the Challenger uh, Accident Commission, you know, when the space shuttle blew up in, in the 1980s. And uh, in that, and for the for the final report of this commission, looking at the Challenger accident, he wrote a little appendix, which I thought was uh, quite nice. But he said that uh, basically that uh, you can't fool Mother Nature. And that, uh, I mean, petitions to disregard what is known from science really uh, are doing a tremendous disservice. Uh, so some of those same lessons are quite apparent in, in dealing with the, with the pandemic. Uh, also, from my experience working inside this, the State Department as the science advisor, and although I've been in Washington for many years, sort of helping to advise on public policy, I'd never served inside the government. So it's almost like being a, uh, a postdoc again or a graduate student learning a whole new uh, uh, area. Uh, I have tremendous respect for the real diplomats who serve in the State Department. But my role was essentially engaging with countries, uh, both the science communities and government officials on issues of science technology. And innovation. And what I found there was every country I engaged in, uh, whether it was very developed, advanced in science technology, whether it was a developing a low-income country, middle-income country, everyone, they always wanted to start with the first topic, and that's how could they upgrade their capabilities in science, technology, innovation, because they saw that was, for their national interest, that was key to their future prosperity, security, competitiveness, uh, and, 
that uh, they saw what had happened in the United States with companies that no one had ever heard of. All of a sudden became some of the largest companies in the world, uh, the high-tech companies. So they were fixated on how they could compete better, develop the uh, science advisory ecosystem in the country, how they could develop uh, innovative capacity in their country. Every country has bright uh, uh, people. Uh, and so the, uh, and they were looking at models of other countries that they thought in the United States was one of those models. So in some sense, engaging with countries, at least in that period, on science, technology, innovation, capacity building, uh, it was a great asset for, for American diplomacy. However, I don't want to exaggerate how much should be accomplished from that because we've clearly seen with the setbacks that have occurred recently, uh, the mistakes that were made in, in dealing with uh, the pandemic, the Trump administration, the United States backing away from the Paris Climate Agreement, the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, so clearly politics is a bigger force than science in the short run, but I still remain somewhat an optimist. I cannot imagine more interdisciplinary approach to um, to professional life than yours, <laughs> uh, being a, a physicist, academic, and then browsing both through politics, uh, diplomacy, international relations, and policy. In what way does your own background, uh, how does it help you to uh, sort of navigate through the intricacies of the policy decisions and policy advising? Uh, when I was overseeing the studies of the National uh, Academy of Scientists, uh, we, we were about 70% of the work were requests from the, the U.S. government on particular topics or issues. And it was through a grant or contract, but the academy conducted its work totally independent of government control. And it was done by putting together expert uh, committees. And most of the, the topics really required multidisciplinary expertise, people from different fields who had some piece of what was needed in terms of what science could say on an important public policy issue. Uh, so these committee and putting together the right committee, you had the right expertise, you could sort of balance the biases to have sort of an objective uh, output that the academy could put a stamp of approval on, on the study, really required working in a multidisciplinary environment. So, so I learned a lot. I'd served on, on uh, academy committees like this before I went to work there. And then after that, helping to to oversee the, the efforts, putting together the right committee of experts from many different fields, multidisciplinary, to be the, uh, the people who could actually carry out a study on a particularly important topic was more an art uh, than a science. So I'm, I'm a great believer that in, in public policy issues that cover all kinds of, uh, of topics, you're uh, getting the right expertise requires getting people with some, with some aspect of the knowledge. It can come from the physical sciences, the biological sciences, the social sciences. It can all come from humanities and also from experience. Uh, a lot of the times when the government asks questions of the academies on particular issues, many of the things they ask for advice on are beyond what science could actually say. So it's very, very important in these committees. The committees say clearly what science could say, where there was uncertainty, what than certainty in the knowledge was, but also when they wanted advice in areas that were clearly beyond scientific knowledge, the academy still tried to provide the advice, but they had to show what was the evidence supporting the conclusions or the recommendations that were made. And off, often they came from people who had wide experience dealing with these topics. So in, in essence, to your, to, to your question, I think uh, scientists who engage in sort of this interface between science policy and society, they have to 
develop some new skills, but it's important to have training, a deep training in an area of science to really understand the science enterprise. And when you're dealing with these very broad topics, clearly you have to have multidisciplinary expertise if you're going to be able to make, uh, uh, to make progress. You've been uh, very critical towards scientific policy and COVID. Um, could you take us through that a little bit? Sure. The, uh, the, the, the public health community, I thought, in terms of uh, international engagement between scientists, probably one of the most advanced communities in the world dealing with uh, infectious diseases, having had the experience of, uh, you know, of the, the original SARS, Ebola, uh, bird flu, uh, so a lot of experience in, our, in the public health community around the world in dealing with uh, these kind of infections that emerged, also the potential of a, of a pandemic. In the United States, the US government had, had world-class experts. There had been many uh, studies that were done advising the government over uh, decades. Uh, even there were sort of a, a games that were conducted, you know, and sort of planning what, would, what, what, what might happen if we had one of these infections that really uh, spread around the world. So I thought the U.S. was really well prepared for dealing what emerged with, uh, uh, with SARS-CoV-2. You said that the U- you thought the U.S. was very well prepared. Can you identify like one or two things that you think are the ones that kind of surprised you and would identify the U.S. as unprepared? Sure. And, and, and there was actually failures in all three aspects, the science, the policy, and the societal aspects of dealing with uh, with the virus. E- even on the science side, there were failures by the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, which was one of the premier uh, public health institutes in, in the world. I mean, the fact that they really muffled you know, the, uh, the testing uh, done originally. Uh, there were failures in the government on the policy side from not having enough personal protective equipment you know, stored up uh, in advance are following what we've been laid out in the plans for how to deal with this type of uh, uh, event. And then, of course, in the, the Trump administration, the public policy part there, at the very top of the U.S. government, there was an you know, abysmal failures. I, I actually think that uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths in the United States resulted from uh, the misbehavior of, uh, of, of Donald Trump. The fact that the U.S. had 20, in 2020 had 20% of the deaths from 4% of the world population. It's just a staggering uh, statistic. So I, th- I think there were these failures across all aspects from our, some of our scientific institutions, some of our, uh, the planning inside our government agencies, as well as in uh, the politicians uh, at the top. And then if you look, what, what has partially rescued the United States from uh, this searing uh, pandemic? course with is science it was the development of these mrna vaccines the moderna and the pfizer which had their origins first of all in research partially funded by the national institutes of health uh, also conducted uh, in, in other countries and then actually the uh, the companies they were moderna was a very small company to begin with but with help from nih they rapidly you know developed in producing uh, the moderna vaccine and uh uh, and then Pfizer working with BioNTech. So science did come to the rescue in part. Now, of course, we're faced with this challenge of vaccinating the, the world. Uh, I think it, also we have these variants. Uh, but the failure in the United States on the societal side also came from the fact that uh, 
you know, it just reemphasized to me once again that on some of these issues, particularly when there are uncertainties in scientific knowledge, that aspects of culture, uh, values, uh, ethics, uh, trust can be more important factors in, in decisions uh, than the scientific input, uh, uh, public health input. Unfortunately, we have now in the United States, as you know, this great division of people that uh, are not willing to get vaccinated. They uh, believe that it, uh, uh, it's been a hoax, that uh, vaccines are unsafe. Uh, they listen to politicians that they're exploiting uh, the, these divisions. So we had failures in the United States also on the societal side. Uh, so trying to figure out how we do better next time, uh, certainly one of the challenges of the Biden administration is not only trying to get all of the American public vaccinated, uh, but also try to help with vaccinating the rest of the world, but also how do you bridge these divisions that are in American society right now they are not willing to, that have uh, misinformation and it's almost impossible to get them to listen to uh, you know, science input. So the, the United States has more challenges than I originally thought would be the case dealing with this kind of a global event. Um, I'd like to sort of use what we talked about in terms of COVID and scientific policy, as well as you talk a lot, a lot about technology and innovation and combine that with the SDGs. What's the good news in that sector? Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me give you the, the good news from uh, at least what I, I view at that. Uh, when, when I served as co-chair of this advisory committee uh, in 2016 to, to 2018 called a 10 member group, it had five, people from developing countries, five from advanced countries, five women, five men, all very talented, uh, very capable uh, individuals. And one of our, in our tasks, we, one of the most interesting meetings we had at the beginning of the, uh, when we were appointed was meeting with the diplomat, diplomats had negotiated creating what, this technology facilitation mechanism as part of the 2030 agenda. And, and what they said was, and these, were diplomats that were from developed countries and developing countries. And they said that we've, for many years, we've had kind of sterile debates that mainly focused on developing countries wanted gifts of technology uh, and advanced countries are talking about, you know, intellectual property rights. Uh, they never really made much progress on trying to bridge the divides of how technology in particular innovation could actually uh, make a big difference globally. And so the, these diplomats said, they said, our, our little committee, you know, we're, we're, this is what we want you to focus on and try to help with. Now, the, uh, the sustainable development goals, I think the aspirational rhetoric is wonderful, the social, economic, environmental goals. It really covers the waterfront, uh, even the countries that don't talk about, the politicians don't talk about the SDGs. If you look at what they're working on, it's all subsumed within them. So, so the, I think our committee was very much focused on how do you turn the aspirational rhetoric into concrete goals, concrete achievements can make progress. And it was pretty clear that most of the real progress that was going to be made was going to be done at the national and the subnational level. Uh, most countries, their foreign ministries, their governments are interested in their national interest. It's good when the national interest overlaps with the global interest on, on an issue. Uh, but somehow you're going to have to find mechanisms to engage at the national level to actually carry out concrete action to achieve the SDG. So one of the things that we proposed and championed, particularly for emerging countries, sort of the lower income and middle income countries that want to make progress, but the countries need to develop, needed to develop what we call the STI for SDGs roadmaps. And, and what that was, 
you look at it, every country has, in some aspect, has a national plan. Uh, many countries also have a plan for increasing their capabilities in science, technology, innovation. What they really want was innovative capacity, how they could turn knowledge from science, you know, into uh, the productive sector of their economy, the private sector, their competitiveness uh, internationally. But also many of them had plans for what among the SDGs were the most important that they wanted to achieve. So there were, there were these three plans and kind of the intersection of all three plans were what we call the STI for SDGs roadmaps. And that was to be sort of a, and a roadmap coming from the technology sector as a plan that evolves over time with improvements aimed at, uh, uh, at far reaching goals. And it, it's a plan that has to be not top down, has to be built up with all the stakeholders and society, civil society, the private sector, as well as the science community. Uh, so we became champions of an, uh, sort of trying to develop these STI for SDG roadmaps. And, and what that is, evolved into, now it's turned on into actually a big enterprise aided by a number of international organizations, several advanced countries, particularly the government of Japan and the, and the EU. And there are six pilot countries now who are actually doing this, three in Africa, uh, uh, Ghana, uh, Kenya, and Ethiopia, three others, uh, Ukraine, India, and Serbia, and about 20 other developing countries that are thinking of joining this exercise. And so these, I mean, it so it's, and it's a, it's a challenge trying to produce these efforts, but the key thing for the science community was that they had to rely on, as they make out these plans and actions that were going to be taken, trying to address the key priorities in these roadmaps, they also had to have a mechanism by learning by doing to make corrections when things were not working out to have advice on how to fix things, how to make alternative approaches. And so the so sort of constant engagement between the the science community, the public policy community, and broader society if you're going to make real progress on these SDGs. So, so I, I think at least that sort of overall exercise is, is very useful. The, 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 other, the other big topic at the, uh, at least at the diplomatic level, I'm thinking about the role of science and technology innovation for the SDGs was on emerging technologies, all the technologies that uh, we're all quite familiar with from AI, robotics, gene editing, uh, big data, et cetera. The, the diplomats and public policy people around the world, they see now that emerging science technology, one, it's moving so incredibly fast. It's creating new opportunities, but it's also creating big new challenges. Uh, it's going to affect countries. It's going to affect societies. It's going to affect foreign policy. And they're very concerned about what the impact is going to be probably more concerned about the impact than it is even about potential opportunities which they have to harness. So there's also a lot of focus in this technology facilitation mechanism. There's an annual meeting every year at the UN called the STI Forum. Besides working on things like STI for SDGs roadmaps and concrete examples of making progress on individual goals, there's also this big effort related to how do we manage and govern uh, these rapidly advancing technologies which may create great opportunities we have to harness, but at the same time, we have, we have to figure out how to govern and manage them to prevent the, the downsides from overwhelming all of the, uh, of the good things. So, so just sort of in summary with uh, uh, the UN 2030 Gen and the role of science, technology, innovation, I think there's great potential. I think also that in some cases, science and technology advances and innovation can leapfrog over some of the uh, diplomatic hurdles. In the case of the Montreal protocol back in the 1980s. It was not only the 
science that illustrated the problem. It was also the fact that some of the big companies, the refrigerant companies, recognized that it was actually in their economic interest. They had some advanced refrigerants, which uh, could actually replace the existing refrigerants. So it was in their economic interest to actually have the economic protocol. And plus, it also had very talented diplomats in uh, the U.S. and in Europe who pushed hard for a number of years. So in some sense, there are examples where science and technology can leap over uh, the diplomatic hurdles. With, with climate change uh, right now, the, uh, well, I'm a great believer in the importance of you know, the Paris Climate Agreement and countries trying to, to make agreements to do things addressing climate change. But I still feel that if we're really going to be able to redress, uh, address the challenge of climate change, it's going to take even more advances from uh, the scientific technological community in terms of uh, you know, alternative sources of energy. Uh, we can't just rely, unfortunately, on the, uh, the goodwill of countries to do the right thing. It's also going to take advances to kind of in this case, also potentially leap over some of the diplomatic hurdles. Uh, do you feel that there is also change in the nature of the scientific dialogue, uh, especially I'm talking about the United States, the European Union, and China, and perhaps Russia? Yeah, the, uh, first of all, I, I'm a great believer in sort of a, the openness of fundamental scientific research, uh, collaboration between scientists in different countries, I believe, for the United States, if the United States wants to remain, you know, among the best, if not the single leader in science, it has to become even more aggressive about international scientific cooperation. Uh, want, if you look at areas of scientific cooperation between American scientists and scientists in, in other countries, the, the, uh, the, the first one right now is, proper, is scientific collaboration papers written by U.S. and, and Chinese scientists. The, the U.S. invested a lot in sort of helping uh, uh, training a number of, uh, of scientists from uh, from China in school, and so they're some of the leaders in their field. I think that's benefited both countries. So I very much want to preserve international scientific collaboration between American scientists and scientists all over the world, including scientists with, with China. Now the uh, you pointed out to the, the big issue right now confronting the, the science community in the, in the United States uh, with uh, cooperation with China, the, uh, and with all the divisions in the American political body right now between the parties, one thing they seem to agree on, which is bipartisan, one is to increase funding in terms of the U.S. science and technology community. And that's mainly because of what they feel is this threat coming from competitiveness with China. But the other thing is also feeling that the Chinese government has uh, misbehaved in some of the ways it has uh, done things that sort of violate the, the norms of scientific collaboration in terms of spying, stealing technology. So there's a lot of pressure on the U.S. scientific community to make sure it understands what some of the risks are when it engages with, with some countries where there would be some, maybe some uh, misbehavior. Uh, but what the impact has been, I think, in the United States science community has been feared that the U.S. government was going to overreact, imposing restrictions on what is some areas of fundamental research, which has been published in the open literature, for making it more difficult from, uh, for young scientists from China to come and be educated, come to graduate school in the United States. And so there's a lot of concern about how to strike the right balance between the security issues and the, 
facted in, in order to advance in the scientific enterprises stage. You really have to work with the best people wherever they are uh, around the world. And so the, the U.S. science community is trying to strike that, that balance. But they're, they certainly like the fact that there's going to be potentially more funding for the scientific enterprise, even though it's coming from the political community to be concerned about, uh, about China, but also trying to not have not throw the baby out with the bathwater to somehow preserve the best aspects of, of international scientific cooperation. And so the data, that is really a, a big issue right now uh, mm-hmm. in the United States facing the U.S. science community. I think the same goes for Europe. I mean, uh, I, I, I can see more and more often, you know, especially in computing and IT technologies, they're being used more and more as a sort of a strategic asset rather than, than a research or, a, or a scientific progress in itself. And it is really, it's very worrying. Um, speaking about worrying, <laughs> worrying issues, in 2018, you published um, a, an article uh, where you said that the, especially nuclear weapons should be still the, the number one priority. Have you changed anything on that since then, or, or do you feel the same about it? I think uh, if nuclear weapons are used again, I think it'd be total uh, catastrophic for the world. So I think it, it has to remain one of the, one of the top priorities. That the fact that, uh, at least during the Trump administration with the US and Russia, you know, we're revoking some of the previous arms control agreements. And the fact uh, now that, there's always this advance of technology, technology applied to, to weapon systems. So there are new things that uh, actually create new and different threats. Some of them with nuclear weapons, uh, hypersonic weapons, but there's also uh, cyber weapons. So I think we can't, we can't forget that the number one issue above all is, is certainly preventing a conflict that could lead to a catastrophic outcome for the world. And, so I, I, I think we can't uh, turn away from, from, from that issue. Uh, I'm a great believer and talk from the mentors that I had long ago who are working with Soviet and Chinese scientists, later with Russian scientists on all of these issues. Back then in the 1980s, when there were these track two discussions between American scientists and Soviet scientists on Gorbachev and Sunfower, they turned out to be as key science advisors. So it had a big impact on uh, government on, on the arms control agreements that uh, that took place in, in the 1990s. So there are these windows of opportunity where the scientific dialogue, when there are these opportunities on diplomatic sphere where it can make a difference. But I think we have to put a tremendous effort in continuing in arms control, but you know, not far down the list. I think climate change is certainly up there uh, at the very top as well. I mean, the, how the world dealt with the pandemic is not a very good model for how to deal with uh, with climate change. Speaking about the climate change, uh, two years ago we've had a, a guest at our symposium uh, in Prague, symposium next one hundred, Professor Tim Palmer, and uh, he spoke about um, what what would bring the the community and and the research on climate change for change forward would be something akin to. CERN in Geneva, but for uh, climate change computing and, and research, do you, because you're a physicist, so do you feel yes. that sort of miracle of CERN could be transferable to other domains or is it desirable? Uh, yes, no, no, I do. In fact, I think there are some examples that uh, 
the Canisius Asia that bill. I don't know how familiar uh, you all are with the ASO, the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, uh, which I've been involved with as well for a long time, located in Vienna. You know, it was created uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet governments uh, in, in the 1970s, and it works on some multidisciplinary systems analysis on these big global challenges, including climate and energy uh, and other areas. Now it has many other countries uh, uh, joining. And it is one area where there is this sort of multidisciplinary work done that involves scientists from a, a range of, uh, of countries. Uh, yeah, and CERN is certainly near and dear to, to my heart. I think it's a great model. And in climate change also, I think the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is a great example of science diplomacy. Uh, it's not only have the, like the recent report plus its predecessors, you know, on the state of science and climate change was put together by this large working groups involved scientists from many different countries. But then also there is this very innovative, you know, summary for policymakers, which in essence is really a negotiated document between the scientists and the uh, representatives of, of the member states at, at the UN. I think it, is, it has had a considerable influence, this sort of that one bridge between the science community and the policy community having to work together in iron out what, are, what is in the summary for policymakers. I sort of see that as a great example of a science diplomacy institution that was built for this bridge. So I'm all in, so the kind of things you've talked about, which you all are pursuing, more examples of international collaborations can be structured in institutions like EASA, like, like CERN, that help facilitate this kind of collaboration. Something like that could be very useful right now between uh, uh, countries in the EU, the United States, with China, uh, and with others. So. Yeah, I wish you the best in, uh, in pushing uh, more examples of that time. Thank you for listening. Until next time, have a great day.